Hey, I'm Eric Newcomer. This week, we have Rebecca Caden on the show from Union Square Ventures. Great episode. We start off talking about psychedelics. Only gets more fun from there. We talk about USV's Climate Fund, the downturn, her career in venture capital. I think you'll really enjoy the episode. Give it a listen. It's Eric Newcomer here with Rebecca Caden at Union Square Ventures. Very excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. This is fun. I think we first met when you were at Mavron. We had dinner at one of maybe the Mission Burma Love. Yeah, it's so good. I haven't been there in a long time, but it's delicious. And then I've seen you, I think, especially memorable was the first Slow Ventures Summit for sort of the up-and-comers, where you were sort of like the, I've made it, you know, I'm at USV, but I can sort of give the wisdom (laughs) to everybody else a little earlier in their careers. Anyway, a lot to talk about on the episode. I mean, I think later on, maybe we'll talk about some of that, like, you know, venture career stuff and sort of being at USV and sort of the downturn, which is interesting. But, you know, you have some fun portfolio companies. And I wanted to jump in, in particular, just talking about Journey Clinical, which you've told me some about, but, you know, is in sort of the, is psychedelics too strong a word, psychedelic space or what? Tell us a little bit about Journey Clinical and how you got excited about that company. Yeah, Journey Clinical is a network of therapists. And what Journey does is provide education and access for therapists to learn about and prescribe and utilize the newest treatments and options with their patients. Right now, the focus is on psychedelics and particularly ketamine. But over time, as new treatments evolve and get regulated and become available, Journey is the go-to platform for their members to learn about them, understand how to use them, and for their patients to get prescribed as they need to. You know, our thesis there really starts at a higher elevation with our, you know, thoughts on mental health. I think, you know, it's now relatively common wisdom that we've moved from a, you know, mental health problem to a a full-on mental health crisis in this country. I think it's, you know, one of the top three epidemics that we're facing. You know, there's kind of like climate change, you know, Actually, there's probably many other epidemics, but it's a big one, right? And <laughs> it's actually too yeah, many to name. Climate change tracks to another USV fund. You're like, oh, we've yeah. got a fund for all the big... All the major crises of our time. But this is one of them. And it's pervasive, and it actually relates to a lot of other crises that we're facing around climate polarization, you know, loneliness. And it's something we talk about a lot. And we've been very interested in it from a venture business perspective. The first kind of generation of mental health companies were really around access to care. And that's a bucket that we've played in as well and believe create really good businesses and will go on to create great outcomes. But it's primarily around bringing that care online and getting it paid for. Those are two extremely important things. Mm. And one interesting thing to me about that is that market alone, I think is going to support dozens of billion dollar companies, maybe more. We can all think of a fair number. I think that market has turned out to be way more powerful. The market, sorry, that market being access to mental health care, right? Getting yeah. mental health care online and paid for, right? In our portfolio, we think about Brave Health. There's also, you know, whether it's Alma or Headway or Spring or Lyra, there's a lot of these, right? And many of them are very good businesses and important ones. And, you know, 
are are constrained on supply and demand despite the number in the market because there's so many elements of mental health care to touch that need that access to be provided. People are fascinated by, you know, the USV sort of process. I mean, obviously the returns speak for themselves. I mean, I was just talking to one of your partners about case text, you know, which sold for $650 million to Thomson Reuters. And it's like, you know, it didn't really have a business model when you guys invested. And to some degree, that's what was like appealing. So I guess, you know, people want to know like how you sort of repeatedly invest in weird things or like, how do you find something that sort of feels out there, but is like, you're doing it over and over again. I actually think this is a good example if we kind of keep pulling the thread of how Journey Clinical came to be, right? Because this thesis around access to care, which has attracted so much capital, some of it ours, and is proving to be a good category, you know, has been where the market has gone, but is actually only one piece of the puzzle. And so the way we get into things that are unusual is by having strong theses about where things are going versus being, you know, extremely opportunistic. And obviously there's a balance, but that thesis thinking is important. And a lot of thesis work on this category really led to the belief that access to care is only half the puzzle, right? And the other is, how is care itself going to evolve? And you start unraveling hmm. that thread. Okay, how is care itself evolving? The real biggest last evolution of care is SSRIs. And those have been extremely successful and have done a lot of great things. Those are drugs to treat depression, basically. Yes, those are prescription drugs. Right. You know the roster that you've heard about and have been very important to the treatment for mental health crises. But there's a lot of things they don't treat. They're not a one-size-fits-all model. And they're basically all we got, right? The innovation has not, you know, had a lot of other layers, except for psychedelics. And so we became very interested in psychedelics as, you know, the next card to get turned over and the next option in needing a bucket of options to treat a crisis and then you start, you know, talking to clinicians and researchers and therapists and understanding that we're really at a tipping point on it, right? Ketamine has been a legal drug for actually, you know, quite a long time. That's not really new. And MDMA and psilocybin are progressing through clinical trials, you know, pretty rapidly. And there's becoming large clinical acceptance towards their role in treating mental health problems. But there's also desire for it to be done in a controlled way and through the infrastructure of an ecosystem that's already in place. And so we were looking for that. How do you leverage the mental health ecosystem, the therapists that are experts at this, but also give them access to the newest options? And that's how we got to Journey Clinical. Well, you know, whenever I, you know, sort of healthcare, less somewhat to climate, there's the question of like, why is this like a venture problem and outside of the existing, you know, medical system. Like, I mean, there are pharmaceutical companies. Like, why, if there's money to be made, shouldn't they be trying? Like, what's happening that it feels like you need a real sort of outsider thinking to bring ketamine, a drug, you know, that's legal to people's lives that the medical system is unable or unwilling to do? What's happening there? Well, this isn't really unique to psychedelics or to mental health. You know, pharmaceutical companies make drugs. So the development of drugs falls right. with them. But the distribution and networks right. of access is outside of it. And that's not particularly new or unique here. That's where business opportunity has been. So the idea is when you talk about distribution and networks of access, 
that's often where these business opportunities lie. You know, the development of drugs is kind of a different beast, which lies in the pharmaceuticals. But, right. you know, why is there a business opportunity with creating access? Because the same reason technology drives business opportunity into anything, offline access is slower, it's more gated, it's more piecemeal, right? You have to be at the right doctor at the right time, you have to find it. And then by creating a network, you just allow anyone anywhere to find access and education at a, you know, faster speed and with much broader right. supply, which brings efficiency to the market. This was Series A, right? Or like how far along is Journey on their journey? Yeah. <laughs> series A, but has grown rapidly. Like as, you know, we invested in, call it November, and it's I don't know, 4X, maybe more since then. So it's, you know, I think they're a great team and have executed quite well. But there's also strong tailwinds to this market that they're in. On the regulatory side of it, like, do you think, like, mushrooms are going to be sort of on the table soon? Or how much was this a bet that, yeah, the regulatory regime would change? I don't think mushrooms, as we think about them in, you know, a recreational sense, are just going to get legalized. I yeah. mean, maybe they will, but that's right. a separate kind of thing. I think other forms of psychedelics in, you know, formats that are right for care are very much going to get legalized. And actually, as we did our research, to us, that's a when, not an if. You know, when you dig into what's going mm. on in clinical trials and in that clinical world, in some ways that seems, you know, pretty easy to bet on that these will continue to happen. And if not exactly the forms that we've outlined, rapid new forms of options for care for mental health diseases are going to get, you know, approved and released and really have to and are going to need a network of education and distribution to go into to the therapist network and you know, journey isn't unique to a format, it should cover them. I do think there's regulatory risk here. But I actually, obviously, there's some amount of regulatory risk on psychedelics, right? We have to be honest about it. But I actually think more about regulatory risk across broader online healthcare in general. And I think we're at right. somewhat of a time of just still that whole market still getting worked out on not unique to mental health and not unique to psychedelics, but what you can prescribe online and to whom and to how and how to, you know, allow that really important access that we've come to rely on, but also do it in a, you know, appropriately controlled way. Yeah, I mean, there's been sort of a fair bit of skeptical coverage about sort of the Adderall prescribing companies like Dunn. I mean, this sort of COVID era... Being able to prescribe drugs over you know, video chat was obviously sort of hugely important to those companies. How much is that key to journey? And like, yeah, what do you think about sort of the impact of sort of the more ADHD-focused companies? So with journey, obviously right now, they utilize the ability to prescribe through online appointments. They do so through a lot of controls. And I think in a very kind of specific and defined way. If they couldn't, they have a lot of other plans that you can do it with offline appointments that they could shift to. So it's not so dependent on that format, but for them and many others, it creates efficiency and a level of access that's really beneficial to the category. That being said, it can be abused, right? And I think what we are seeing in this right. market is that I believe that, you know, one, businesses play out to the incentives that they're created with 
not the kind of good or bad intents of the, you know, founders involved, right? So oftentimes the mistakes made aren't malicious. It's that if you create a business model, you know, and you get scale, the business model will play out to the incentives that give it scale. And so if the incentive is purely sell more drugs, right, you will sell more drugs if you start to create scale and you will do internally what you need to in the business to make that happen. And if you don't have checks and balances internally and you don't have kind of catches to make sure that quality is an important piece of the business model, who you're prescribing to, you know, making sure that goes to the right person when and the right appointments happen, you know, I think it can get away from you very quickly. And I think we've seen that in the market here. But I am concerned that, you know, mistakes of this market getting developed that were really problematic might create problems horizontally that we just have to be prepared to face when kind of moving, you know, digital healthcare forward. Moving beyond, you know, this investment, I'm curious, I mean, I mentioned in the beginning of the show, you know, I met you coming from Mavron, which was a very consumer focused firm. And, you know, I've had Sarah Tavel on a couple episodes ago and sort of took stock on the state of consumer. I'm curious, like when you were interviewing with USV, was it clear in your mind you would be sort of shifting away from consumer and like what percentage of like consumer have you been doing since moving over and how have you thought about it sort of professionally yeah. in this sort of period where consumers is tough and there are sort of big swings and you know it's I don't know it's a challenge yeah I mean we can table this but I actually think consumer is about to become exciting in new ways but you know what all USB, right well I will circle back to that right we can circle answer. back to that but I think you know <laughs> Firms all have different designs and kind of cut the world in different ways. Mavron cut the world by being a category-focused firm on consumer and doing that super well. And by having those guardrails, was able to develop expertise and brand and network in direct-to-consumer businesses. USV just cuts the world in a different way. And I definitely knew that, you know, going in and it was something that, and it is something that I'm excited about. We don't think a lot about kind of the divide in our portfolio. If we think about our fund construction or, you know, how we're looking at the world between consumer and B2B, what we think about is this thesis and kind of the mechanics involved. For instance, you know, the role of building network-driven businesses and the opportunity to leverage, you know, bottom-up networks to create moats and scale and to broaden access by driving, you know, up value and down costs systematically across, you know, cap- categories we care about, you know, capital, well-being, knowledge. And sometimes the right application when you pull the threads of that thesis is a consumer, you know, product or service. And sometimes it's the enabling infrastructure of them. But most of USV's investments hmm. have been one of those two things. They've either been the end application or the enabling infrastructure involved. But a common theme throughout our investments is how do you build important networks that can change industries but rise outside of them? Like if you think about Journey Clinical, right, it's a network. It's a network of therapists. They're stronger the more you add on to them. It's a bottom-up growing network of acquiring the therapist, even though it interacts with the healthcare system and can change it. But it's growing this network outside of the infrastructure to then impact the existing structure. We really like that if you think like across of our investments. And sometimes that turns out to be consumer. If you think about, you know, an out school in education or a Duolingo or a Twitter. And sometimes it turns out to be, you know, the enabling infrastructure or the B2B marketplace application 
like a journey clinical. So, you know, we just cut the world in a little bit of a different way. Do you think a lot about your sort of personal mix of investments or they tend to be firm wide or how do you think about how much consumer type investments you're doing now? Even though I know those can sometimes. Yeah, I don't think that much about how many of my investments are consumer and how many of my investments are B2B. I do think about like, am I focused on a range of, you know, problems and thesis areas, right? If we think a lot about, you know, capital knowledge and well-being, I want to, you know, be doing things across them and climate, you know, which is its own fund that's important to us. And one thing we feel strongly about as a firm, which is a little bit different from other platforms, is that each of us should make investments and have insight into each of these categories. We don't want someone to be on Hmm. fintech and someone to be on education because our firm is really small, right? There's only, you know, a small handful of partners and we want a lot of shared knowledge and conversation and debate. So we don't want a situation where something comes in and we say, this is a climate investment. So like Albert, you know, what do you think about that? Or this is a fintech investment, John, like what should we do? We want it to be everyone's responsibility to have an insight and have a perspective. And I think that's done by us all investing across each of the buckets. You said right before we got into this, you thought consumer was about to take off. Why Why do you think that? The piece of the AI craziness that I'm most excited about is the application layer. I think there's still a lot of kind of complexity hmm. and uncertainty on the foundational model and on the enabling infrastructure on where equity value aggregates, right? How much of the stack the models own, how defensible those models are, you know, how that shakes out. But what I feel like we can have more conviction about is that it unleashes a wave of consumer innovation that's going to be really fun because the way this is going to get utilized is by products that we want to use. I'm excited about unleashing this rejuvenated value around fun things to do, right? Where the coolest thing about AI-driven applications is they get better if people actually use them. So the strongest incentive of the team is to Mm. increase engagement and utility. And I think the only way to do that is to combine utility with fun. There's going to be so many things in the market that if things aren't fun to use, you'll go to another option. But the team has a huge incentive to get you to stick because that's how their product gets better. So if you think about something like Duolingo, which has you know been on this for a long time of leveraging machine learning and AI to create better you know consumer experiences, streaks, gamification, fun infused with the utility of language learning is critical because their product gets better if I use it. And I'm really excited to see hmm. that apply to lots of different consumer applications. And I think. We've been talking a lot and everyone's been talking a lot about where are there going to be moats, right? You know, is stickiness going to be possible? The barriers feel low. And I think the moat is going to be fun and teams that can create rapid new fun things that keep you on the platform. And we haven't seen that in a while and I'm excited about it. Chatbots, I guess, would be sort of front of mind in terms of consumer. You know, you have companies like Character. Is that the kind of thing you're thinking about or you're thinking of like more on the other end of the spectrum, like pure games that sort of employ large language models in some way or any sort of more specificity on the type of thing you're seeing? I don't know that we're even fully seeing it yet. I think we're seeing a lot in learning. I think we're going to see a lot in consumer financial services, maybe even in healthcare, right? There's a huge advantage to companies that can 
get me sticky on being a point of entry for care in terms of diagnostics and kind of data networks, but you got to make me want to use it, right? And I don't know that we've fully seen these come to life yet. I think chatbots are a start, but I don't think kind of a chatbot interface on its own is going to be fun enough. And what you're seeing in this kind of early first wave of consumer applications on these models is high trial, low engagement, right? So you see, you know, big usage numbers out of a gate and top line, and then Mm -hmm. very low 30, 60, 90 day engagement, because I think we're in a period of trial behavior. Like me and everyone else will try anything that comes along. It's so easy to try. And we're all so curious. But the real right. indication is what I'm still using, you know, a few months from now. I know. Even with ChatGBT, I mean, I, partially it feels like they're maybe degrading the quality of the service. But I use it regularly for proofreading still. Like it's good at catching random typos. Yeah. But I don't think, you know, in the beginning I was having like long conversations with it. And really it was like, in a let's feel out sort of how powerful this thing is and sort of really get a sense of it. And the novelty of that winds down. I don't know. Do you find yourself using it much these days? You know, I use it for a very specific use case every day, which is, you know, I used to use it in the same way, like kind of as a toy or for help writing. I found myself doing that less. What I use it for, actually, is that my son, who's five, loves having it create bedtime stories for him. So he loves the idea of telling it, I want to hear a story about Max, who's his name, and my brother, Leo, and we meet Spider-Man, and we go to a glacier, and we fight Green Goblin. And he loves being able to <laughs> oh play with those inputs and have it tell a story. And I really like it because I used to have to make up those stories every night, and now it does it for me. And he thinks, you know, the chat GPG stories are certainly better than my made-up stories, which is interesting because that's a full toy use case. But it's sticky because he thinks it's right. Fun. Right? And so, I'm like, that's I don't know. a business, you know? There are lots of... <laughs> Maybe. Clearly people will make children's books with this. Or, you know, I mean, people used to do all those like fill in the blank. People love the idea of like, oh, you put your name in it. But you do that like most nights now? Basically every night. I mean, that I'm home. For oh my God. <laughs> That's amazing. Are you searching for companies with like AI in mind? Or would you invest in a company right now, to put it a totally different way, that is not sort of talking about AI? Like, does every company in some ways need to be using language models to be relevant to investors at the moment? Or do you still see, like, people with, like, totally different theses that are unrelated that are exciting to you? We absolutely see companies that are exciting. I mean, I can think about pieces of climate, for example, that are not related to AI. However, I think very similar to mobile. If you're talking to a company and... Mobile should be a part of their strategy or could add leverage to their strategy. You want them to talk about it, right? It doesn't have to be the first thing you're doing. It doesn't have to be the core of their business, but it's an important component of it. So if you're thinking about education companies, right, where you spend a fair amount of time on direct-to-learner education, AI has been instrumental in lowering the cost of creation in a lot of ways and personalizing learning. It doesn't have to be that their thing is an AI company, but we would be curious if that's a tool set that adds leverage to what they're doing. Healthcare, right? We spend a fair amount of time in access to care. There's a lot going on there about how AI can offer more personalized care and change the cost structure. I would argue that one of the most, if not the most, most important thing to do in healthcare right now is to change the cost structure, and that's an important tool. 
maybe they've come up with a different way to do it that's, you know, also exciting. So it's not a gating item for us, but it's coming up in a lot of conversations. Yeah. I mean, with mobile, it's a little more clear, like, oh, are you going to be there? Like, there's this, it's a new way to get users that's sort of quickly growing. You're going to be differentiated from your competitors. With, like, you know, the LLMs, it's a little more varied in, like, whether it's like a tool to make you more productive or it's not always clear to companies like which piece of their business they're supposed to use it for. Totally. Yeah. And I think a big question is, is it customer or user facing or is it internal efficiency? I think for a lot of companies, right, right, right. the lowest hanging fruit is going to be internal efficiency. Can you make tasks that you do that add cost internally more efficient, leveraging some of these tools and improving your margin structure and that is likely to come into play before it's a, you know, a user or a customer facing tool. Do you see venture capitalists doing that? Do you think like LLMs will be useful for what you do? I'm sure it will be in a lot of ways. There are a lot of rote tasks we do, you know, areas that we've been thinking about where it's particularly useful. Obviously, rote tasks is one. Companies have more of them, especially as they scale than venture capitalists that we've discovered. But I'm sure... There are ways, you know, USV is a relatively boutique firm, right? We're not doing so many investments each year. A lot of it is dependent on a small group of people sitting around in a room and really hashing out our thesis and ideas. It's not scale, right? Like it's kind of the antithesis of scale (laughs) in a lot of ways, despite our interest in scale in companies. And so it doesn't feel to me the most natural fit, but we have a lot of data and I'm sure we will, you know, think about using. We're playing with a bunch of different things internally all the time. I don't know that we've, like, found its, you know, sweet spot. But the other place we think about its utility is where are there complex interfaces that you use, whether it's SQL or Excel, right, or Salesforce, where people get hired particularly to interact with an interface or, you know, you can take an Excel class, right? But it's all data on the back end. And I think one of the lowest hanging fruits is transforming that interface. And there's mm. applications for our business around that. So no doubt it, there'll be intersections. I'm not sure we've you know, nailed it right now. Shifting gears to the climate fund. Have you invested out of the climate fund in anything that's like truly non-tech in some way? Or it's more just it's tech, but it's like, you know, super heavy capital intensive hardware. It's more the latter. It's more the latter. Right. We did micronuclear reactor investment. Really cool. Who makes it micro? I honestly don't know. Oh, the nuclear reactors are small. They're actually in shipping containers, whereas generally wow, nuclear reactors are really big. Yeah, it's really cool. It's uh, called Radiant. Do um, they exist or this is like? They exist. They can be built and piloted, but it will take a long time for them to be really, you know, rolled out and commercialized and there's regulatory risk. There's all kinds of risk with it. And yeah, we also right. think that nuclear is an essential piece of the pie in changing the energy spectrum. So both are important. We think in our climate fund really deliberately around fund construction, right? It was important for us to have a nuclear investment in the fund. It's also important for us to not have so many nuclear investments in the fund. And so we think hmm. about that balance really particularly, honestly, probably more specifically than we do in the core fund. I mean, small nuclear was very interesting. Are there other ones that are like are, are fun to hear about at the moment or that you think are particularly interesting in the fund oh, there's so lots. far? Yeah, the climate fund has kind of been fun because, you know, I guess actually these days between climate and psychedelics, like I have a lot of, you know, 
party conversation feel, yeah. but uh, <laughs> oftentimes I don't. And it's like, here's a B2B marketplace I think is really interesting, but like, you're not going to think is that it. People love to be like, what are you investing in? <laughs> but the climate fund is actually like a gold mine because it's a lot of really cool stuff. We have Remora, which is doing carbon capture off the back of semi-trucks. We've been very interested in how can you take existing, hmm. we split the fund into mitigation and adaptation, right? Mitigation is how do you decarbonize the planet, right? How do you prevent more carbon in the atmosphere and sequester carbon? Adaptation is how do we adapt to a world where this is what's going on, right? A world with climate where you're hmm. going to have more extreme weather events, where, you know, we have this changing ecosystem and planet. What do we need to do to live in it? And so we put investments in both hmm. in the fund. So, for example, adaptation, we have flood map, right, which is a data network around predicting floods, which is going to be enormously important given the hmm. weather patterns that we're seeing. Mitigation, we have something like Remora, which is, you know, carbon capture off the back of semi-trucks. We have an existing, you know, world of semi-trucks driving across the country. Very hard to stop that. Very problematic to the American economy to stop that. But how do you adapt them to be able to, you know, further mitigation of the climate crisis? Well, you can attach these hardware contraptions and capture carbon along the way. So there's a lot of really interesting innovation coming out of it. You know, I always say, you know, if future generations get the ability to look back at ours, they'll be, you know, very critical of where we allowed this planet to get to, but amazed at what innovation could do to change course. And they'll only be able to do that right. if it does change course. And if it doesn't, it'll be mute because they won't be there to tell us. It's easy to fall into this sort of, I feel like the tech mindset can sometimes fall into, oh, this problem will get solved. You know, it's like there was just that article about the super white paint that is very reflective. It's like, oh, we can yeah. just deploy that. But obviously, you know, somebody has to do the solving, which is also sort of the entrepreneurial sort of tech mindset. It's like, yeah, the money has to be deployed. Like somebody has to go do it. It's not, you can't just sort of like, oh, we, we tend to work things out. You know what I mean? that. So yeah, I guess that's the way of saying it. it's good that you guys are doing these climate funds. And obviously sort of where a firm like USV goes, so goes a lot of Silicon Valley eventually. Are you seeing the growth stage funds. I mean, I've written about lower carbon before. Obviously, Chris Saka sort of came out super strong on the early stage. You guys are now sort of coming out strong. There are certainly others. But it doesn't feel like we've seen sort of the growth stage at the same level. Or how are you feeling about like follow-on capital yeah. for the companies that you're investing we've in? We've been very focused on this question. First of all, there are some right? You have Galvanize, which is really interesting. You have some both horizontally interested in climate, like a Galvanize, and then more verticalized around energy or, you know, different pieces of it that touch it. But overall, we think there's a dearth. And you see some strategic come in, right? Benioff, some people have made huge commitments that they're making good on, on putting capital at growth stages behind these innovations. But we don't believe there's the systematic growth stage capital that this market needs. And it's not only just later stage venture funds. My partner, Albert, wrote a really, really good blog post on this called the Climate Funding Stack or something like that. You should look it up. But about this issue of building out the financing stack for climate. 
And the reason we think it's important is it's not just raise a big growth fund. Oftentimes, these projects have, you know, facilities involved. They may need different forms of financing. You have to combine, you know, an equity financing with different types of debt because they're building something out. It's not as simple as scaling software, but it's really important to do. And so we think there's a big opportunity for new funds to form with mixes of capital structures that can support this ecosystem. And we're, you know, been very active in talking to people and helping them who are thinking about, you know, coming out and doing Part of the beauty of investing in software is like, you know, if you do it long enough, you can, I mean, I don't do it, but my sense is that you start to see the milestones. That it's like this company, if we invest, if you hit these milestones, you'll probably raise more money. Or at least that was true. Maybe less true this year. But like, how do you do that with climate companies where, first of all, they're much more different one to another? It's not like, okay, here's a SaaS for X. Yeah. It's like, here's a totally different company. How do you figure out what milestones this company could reach before to, to get another round of funding? It's a really good question. And we spend a lot of time on that internally at the early stages because I totally agree with you. It's much more complex and varied than a, you know, there's a there's limitless blogs out there on, you know, milestones for SaaS companies on raising different rounds. And this right. is not it. And in some ways, the most complicated part is the market doesn't really know yet. Right. There isn't, I don't think, a horizontal answer. And there's a lot that goes into the climate fund. Right. There's software companies, Carbon Chain, which is carbon accounting for source of truth for supply chains. That looks a lot like a SaaS company. Right. The milestones involved are going to be a lot like a SaaS company. It's going to be underwritten that way. You know, but then there's, you know, the nuclear company, Radiant. Totally different milestones. You can't do it off of revenue. And so we do a lot of talking to the market. Right. Like before we go into categories, really doing our homework on what those downstream investors would want to see, what, you know, the expectation is to unlock different levels of capital, how much capital is going to be necessary to get these companies to the Hmm. proof points and trying to underwrite that. And as we all know, sometimes that's not so clear at the early days. We also we tailor the capital we put in to the different rounds to that capital risk. We think about that a lot more in the climate fund in many ways than we do in the core fund because that ecosystem is evolving. As in not just deploying a ton of money to something because it will need it? Or what do you mean you tailor the capital? Meaning if we think that risk is higher, we may do a smaller seed, right? We tailor our own exposure depending on the risks involved. You do the stage. You're like, oh, we'll do a seed. Yeah, that makes sense. I said at the beginning of this that I would ask you about your career and sort of looking at it in this down market. I mean, you know, it feels to me like, you know, there was a period where it seemed like every promising up and coming VC, and certainly I put you in that category, it was like, oh, should I be starting a fund? Like, did you consider starting a fund when you went to USV? And like that for a while, that seemed great. Like you're going to get a lot of the economics and like there's potentially more upside But then now, you know, I feel like many of those same funds are the ones where LPs are sort of much more cautious and might be the hardest to raise. Anyway, so that's me laying out what I see as sort of how things went. But I'm curious, yeah, for you, just like how you thought about the decision to go to sort of an established firm versus maybe setting out on your own. 
Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. One, I actually think some of the new franchises and platforms that are coming out are extremely exciting. You know, I look at what friends of mine are building in all kinds of different realms, whether that's like a Pace Capital or what, you know, Jess and April are building or 12 Below in New York or these kind of different platforms. And you look at them and there's so much hustle. There's so much perspective. The networks are so strong. There's a lot to prove. But one thing I love about venture is it really favors the hungry. You know, you're only as good as the fund you're deploying right now. All of those past successes can make old partners rich, but they can't make you, you know, win that next deal if you don't get out there and hustle for it. And you can be outworked and outhustled. And I, you know, there are a lot of people doing it. And so there is a natural evolution of platforms. And LPs, I think, are excited about them. So I actually think it's a pretty interesting time. That being said... Sorry to interrupt, but I'll let you keep going with this point. But I mean, PitchBook put out data that affirmed that there is, you know, it seems like LPs are favoring existing firms. I mean, of course LPs are favoring That doesn't mean the sort of the coolest new... Right, right, right. Yeah, okay. As long as we're aligned on that sort of being the universe, right? The data is the data, right? Like, of course LPs are favoring existing firms, right? And especially in times of tumult, you pull to the kind of, you know, most obvious ones. But there's also a lot of data that in many cases, first funds outperform, right? That like many platforms are never as good as the first fund. I am, you know banking my career that USV will outperform USV's first fund, which is hard to do because that was an epic first fund. (laughs) But I'm going to, you know, work my ass off until we do that. But, you know, there's a reason why. And I think it has to do with risk tolerance and hunger. And it's a really cool element, I think, of the venture ecosystem that's very much in play right now. That being said, you know, I think everyone has their own set of aspirations. And mine is to be you know, one of the, you know, best investors of my generation in terms of returns and firm building and working with and behind companies that I can be proud to be a part of. And that is kind of, I've always been very clear on that being my aspiration. It wasn't to start my own thing. And so if I felt like I could accomplish those goals on a platform I was excited about, you know, that was what I wanted to do. And and I think USV is really unique. Everything from the way we're structured and set up to how our partnership works. And I frankly don't think I could, you know, I, I know I couldn't recruit a set of more impressive partners if I went out and tried. And, you know, I couldn't think of a reason why that would have been a better choice for me. What's your sense of how screwed, like, the venture capital asset class is right now overall? I mean, you know, with I feel like with interest rates going up, there's been more and more concern that just like the sort of median venture performance isn't like good enough to justify sort of the investments in a world where LPs can go elsewhere. I mean, obviously, USV sort of is fine, but I'm just curious, like how venture broadly does affects you because it affects, you know, later stage financing, everything like that. Like. So, yeah, what, what's your read of the market? Probably most importantly, it affects the appeal of great founders to start companies, right? Like people start companies when they feel like funding is there and they're excited about platform shifts and opportunities. And so it, it matters a lot, I think, the broad perception for the talent, which is, I would argue, in many ways, the most important piece of it. I, I think mm. it's a mixed story. I think the vintages of the last few years are going to be very tough for every obvious reason, right? The entry prices, the reset of a market, 
the potential outcomes, the crowdedness, all of it is going to make a set of vintages very tough to prove out and are going to be a little bit of a bloodbath to watch. But venture is cyclical and at heart is about, you know, putting early capital into powerful new technologies, particularly around shifting markets, right? The market creation. And we're straight in the middle of that, right? We are seeing that happen. Right. It's an essential time for that to happen. And in some of the most exciting ways, categories that we've long awaited to intersect with technology shifts, I think are happening, right? Healthcare and education and financial services. I feel like those intersections are coming to fruition in a more concrete way through some of these technologies that we're seeing and products being built than has happened before. And that's extremely exciting. And we're seeing a dramatic talent shift to it. More people want to go out and start climate businesses. They want to work on things that matter. It's less appealing to stay at large platforms that are, you know, bumpy or late stage companies where they don't know that, you know, their options are above water. And so they're going out and they're starting businesses. So there's a lot of recipes for the next set of years to be a very good time in venture, interest rates and chaos and all. But, you know, have we all learned to be pretty cautious on entry prices? Have we learned to slow down? You know, I think hopefully these lessons at least have some longevity, even though I know, you know, memories are short. With large language models and AI, like totally believe it and get it. It's like, okay, this is sort of a transformational technology, like we're in a downturn, but who cares? It's like if mobile came around, you know, when the world was ending, like a great VC firm should have tried to gobble everything up that they could. And I mean, some, yeah, anyway, so, so I get that. And with climate, to some degree, there's more capital and interest and excitement and belief sort of happening. I don't quite get on sort of the healthcare education side what like the technological inflection point is at the moment or like, because I mean, the regulatory problems have stayed the same. I think some of the regulatory problems might shift, but on the technology piece of it, I would argue the biggest problem in those systems is a cost issue, right? They're kind of purposefully exclusionary. They are complicated. They are one size fits all and they are too expensive. Actually, the healthcare and education have very different problems from each other in lots of ways, but I think have that set of issues in common. And the best way to change that is technology, because in many ways, that's a product problem. And scalable technology that can personalize delivery of care, delivery of education, can change a cost curve and create new forms of access. And I think we are seeing some of that technology, you know, be built and products come to life in a much more accelerated way right now than we have before hmm. and in ways that we're going to finally break through some of that noise. Our strong belief is that, you know, to your point on regulation, is that these systems are going to change from the outside in. That fighting from internally hmm. in the structure and selling into them is a slog and is incremental change, but enough pressure from users being able to use new products and services at the right cross-structure from the outside can put pressure on and change structures outside in. And I think we are going to start to see that in important categories. Great. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's the episode. I'm Eric Newcomer. Thanks so much to Rebecca Caden. Shout out to Tommy Heron, our audio editor, Riley Kinsella, my chief of staff, Annie Wen, our intern who's helping with producing. 
Young Chomsky for the wonderful theme music. Please like, comment, subscribe on YouTube. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the Substack, newcomer.co. Thanks so much. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.